0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 22. Variations. An education. Several times a year... The husband would go out drinking with other teachers, sometimes after a school play or a colleague's retirement, and always after a long evening of parent-teacher interviews. On these nights, I knew not to expect him home until 1 or 2 a.m., and I was fine with that. But in the last year of our marriage, these nights became more frequent, and he'd arrive home much, much later. At 4 Or 5 a.m. Sometimes I'd wake up to the sound of him crashing around in the kitchen downstairs. He's such a big, clumsy man at the best of times, but drunk and stoned, he's an elephant. All household items, beware. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night in a sudden panic Is he dead somewhere? Did he drink so much that he got in a fight, and now he's lying in an alleyway hurt? My heart would race, and I'd call him, text him, but often there'd be no answer. Those nights were the worst. I'd lie there and worry, tossing and turning, till I heard the lumbering giant come up the stairs. I honestly only imagined something horrible had happened to him. I never once thought he was with a woman. Can you believe it? But that didn't mean I wasn't angry. By the time he'd stumble in, I'd be near hysterical. You're a married man, a father. You could have answered me. I thought you were dead. And he'd mumble, Sorry, sorry. Always so sorry. After the fact. The best times were when I slept soundly and didn't wake up in a panic or hear him when he came crashing into bed. Instead, I'd wake up in the morning light to find him lying beside me, his breathing heavy, his adorable but drunk face so sweet-looking, so calm. And this is how it is. One early morning in November 2011, when at 5 a.m. he returned from the grade 12 commencement. He crawls into bed and doesn't realize I'm awake. Turning onto his side, away from me, he lets out a huge sigh. Reflexively, we wind our legs together, as always. and I watch his freckled back as it rises and falls with his breathing. I wonder, what are they doing, these teachers, till 5 a.m.? Where do they go? He senses I'm awake and sleepily turns and looks at me, eyes half open. Hi, love, I say. Do you think your psychologist could recommend me a psychologist? Is what he says back. Day to day. I'm rushing to Birdie's after-school daycare. Again. The single-parent dash. I run in at exactly 6.01 p.m., but I'm met by the disapproving looks of the women at work. My child is, as always, the last child waiting to be picked up. I'm sweating, exhausted, guilty, so guilty for having to leave work early, for deigning to work at all based on the daycare ladies' faces. Guilty when Birdie says, I'm starving, what's for dinner? I have no idea what's for dinner. or even if there's anything in the fridge. We walk home together, from her school, past the ex-husband's apartment building, across the major city intersection, and through the little park to my building. She chats the whole way about warrior cats, and I half-listen, going over my favorite fantasy instead. The one where I'm a man in the 1950s. After my long day at work, I come home to a clean apartment. The smell of a delicious meal in the air. A martini waiting. After dinner, while my wife washes the dishes, I relax and read a newspaper as my child plays happily but quietly on the floor. (sighs) I would give anything to be a man, especially a white middle class man in the 50s. Those guys had it made. Instead, I'm a white lady in 2014. A single lady. A single mom. I will not get to sit down and relax until 10 o'clock tonight. At 7 o'clock, I'm cooking pasta when Bertie calls out from the bathroom. Uh, Mom? Mom? You need to come in here Now! The toilet is overflowing. A lot. I grab a plunger and start madly to work. Plunging, sweating, plunging, so much sweating. How does this work? It isn't working. I flush, plunge, sweat. Brown, stinky water goes all over the floor and my shoes, which, of course, I haven't taken off yet since I went straight to the kitchen to make dinner the second we walked in. My shoes covered in disgusting sludge, hot tears starting, and then Bertie yelling from the kitchen. The pot is overflowing! I run, tracking brown toilet water with me, and the pasta water is a geyser all over the stove. I grab it and burn my hand. My toilet water hand. Fuck! Fuck! I can't do this! It's too much! Because it is. Sometimes, sometimes being a single mom is too much. I know, I'm not a real single mom. They are doing this 24-7. I don't know how. I'm a part-time mom, a co-parent. So it's definitely different. But I still suck at it, sometimes. there are still these moments. There are still no Mother's Day gifts or Christmas gifts and no gifts of sleeping in and breakfast in bed. No one to stop the pasta water from overflowing while I stop the toilet water from overflowing. Check this out, mom. Birdie is making hilarious faces at me. I'm crying and feeling sorry for myself, while the real gift, this kid of mine, is saying, Mom, this is a lot of stuff happening at once. I laugh, I hug her, and agree. It is a lot of stuff. Together, We put towels down on the bathroom floor. I show her how to pee in the bathtub. Then I just shut the bathroom door and put on a new pot of pasta. Blindness Spring, 2014 I'm in the man with the white shirt's apartment Washing all the dishes as he naps I love doing this I can't really explain it Why it feels so good to be washing his dishes while he sleeps. Or why I'm here at all, accepting his half-love in return for my full. But there's an electrifying comfort in this moment. This normal, I feel, in the most abnormal of situations. When I'm here, in White Shirt's apartment, I really do feel young again. Here, there are no responsibilities or demands. There aren't even any clocks Here, I don't think about mortgage renewals and ex-husbands and missing my birdie so much it hurts. I don't think about car payments, insurance expiration dates, or what to make for dinner or office politics or my parents. His apartment is a cozy cocoon. Just the two of us and no sense of time. A stark contrast from my real life out there. In here... I can be 20 again. We can fall asleep when the sun comes up. We can talk all day and smoke weed and drink coffee and never put clothes on. We can pick up guitars and sing songs together. We can get a flash of inspiration at the same time and both have to dash to grab our notebooks and furiously scribble things down in them. We can laugh and lounge around and have sex four times in as many hours. In here, I'm relaxed. In here, with him, I feel the most like me. I walk around and look at things. His things. Things I love. Things that make me feel more connected to him, even in this cramped and untidy space. The way he's turned a vintage briefcase into a nightstand, and how that mirrors the little retro suitcase in my apartment that I use as a toolbox. The massive Art Nouveau absinthe poster he has on the wall, similar to the one in my apartment, except I spent a lot of money to have it framed, and his is held in place by big peeling chunks of packing tape. And just look at all these tiny trinkets and keepsakes, arranged just so. In his bathroom are some of my things now. Just a few in a drawer, no big deal. I know I'm not the only woman in his life, but I don't find any evidence of them here. There's only my toothbrush, my comb. My hand cream. Not even his other not-girlfriend, rockabilly redhead, seems to leave her stuff here. I wonder if she knows about me, if she cares. What does she think about him seeing both of us at the same time and maybe some others in between? I wonder what she wants, is hoping for. I know what I want. I want to be able to think about him and not have it hurt. Over time, I get bolder, leaving more and more of my personal things in the bathroom and other parts of his apartment, too, marking my territory, even though it isn't mine to mark. (sighs) How did I get here? If we're really honest with ourselves, we both could have seen this coming. Like... From day one, the day of our very first date. The man with the white shirt and I, standing on Dundas West. Outside of the bar we were just in, where he had a beer, I had a ginger ale, and we had great conversation. Out on the street, we lingered to see what would happen next. He says... I need to tell you something, but I cut him off. Me too. I have a kid and an ex-husband. I hold my breath. We just met. It's been an amazing night, and he is so hot, and I want to take him home with me. And usually, I don't tell guys about Bertie and the ex-husband, but I want to tell this man for some reason. Wow, cool. He says, and asks how old she is and how long it's been, the usual questions. I ask what he has to tell me. I see other women, he says. And I say, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Because we just met. Of course we see other people. I didn't understand what he really meant. But also, he didn't really tell me. If he had said more clearly that he was polyamorous or that he didn't believe in monogamy, maybe I would have cut my losses right then and there. If he had said, being in a monogamous relationship is not right for me, it's possible that despite how hot he was and how special he seemed, I may have decided right then and there I would not get involved. But he didn't say that and I heard what I wanted to hear. I heard him saying he was non-monogamous until he met the right one, just like me. We kissed in a doorway, our first kiss, and this is the moment where we both chose blindness, however subconsciously. In that doorway, I remember thinking he'd probably be just okay in bed. Or maybe it would be amazing, but that would be it. It wouldn't amount to anything more. I remember thinking, even though we didn't know each other that well yet, it's possible that because we'd seen each other across a room and had that fireworks moment just the night before, that thing they call love at first sight, maybe he would turn out to be my second great love. You can think a lot of contradictory things during one kiss. We decided to go back to my place. And there was this moment where we were trying to shove his bike into the back of my tiny car, arguing like we'd been a couple forever. Sorry, sorry. Put it in here. No, here. No, move it this way. An unusual foreplay that, for me, added to the magic because it was comfortable and intimate, The way we negotiated the bike's placement, forcing it to fit in my tiny hatchback so we could close the trunk. Already, we were trying to make things fit that didn't, or at least didn't fit easily. I don't know how I didn't see that until now. Time. It surprises me now how much time can pass where I have no contact with the ex-husband, where I don't even think about him. It can be weeks sometimes. Funny, isn't it? For years, after a breakup, your ex is always on your mind, a funny story about them on the tip of your tongue. Then suddenly, one day without realizing you stop thinking about them as much. Finally. But it's always short-lived. We still have to see each other. Because of co-parenting, or to talk about some vestige of the separation agreement that still needs to be ironed out. We still have to talk. And that means flirting. Or fighting. Or both. And then the moving on, for me, grinds to a halt. Other things set me off, too, like that time at a party when a woman I know callously starts talking about how she's sleeping with a married man. Boom. I'm shell-shocked again. Or the time he shows up on a dating app and a ton of women I know screen cap it and text it to me, along with, Is this your husband? To which I reply, Ex-husband, Also, that photo's from like 15 years ago. As if. And we all have a big old laugh at his expense. But inside of me, the awful, twisty pang returns. Not a pang of nostalgia, but a pang of regret. Regret that I married him in the first place, because it brought me here. To this moment, where I have to relive a precise pain, over and over again. I want to be able to laugh it off. I mean, really laugh it off, like laugh him right out of my life, but I'm stuck with him forever because of Bertie. Without a child, I wouldn't have to talk to him at all, ever. There would have been distance. It would have been easier to get over the heartbreak and hurt. I know it wouldn't have changed some things, I'm sure I'd still want to scream when people casually talk about infidelity, like it's some fun adventure they went on. I know I wouldn't have avoided the screen-capped profile pics, but maybe I would have had a real chance at healing if he wasn't around so much. If he wasn't there with his smirk and those shiny eyes and his words that hit me like so many slivers of flying broken glass. Time is healing the wound, just like they said it would, but it will always be there. The scientist, the husband, the ex husband, he's always with me. And in that way, I will never be free. Full moon, 1st of July. Dear White Shirt, Tonight, we talked and talked, all the adults, once the kids finally fell asleep. We drank wine around a bonfire, and then more wine, and we talked about how the moment is life. How the things you can't plan for, isn't it funny how they often turn out to be the best things? If we let them. We had more wine. We talked about death and fear, risk, love, gratitude. We talked about how our parents fucked us up and what ways we would inevitably fuck up our own kids. We laughed so much, even when what we were talking about was painful. We talked about you because everyone always wants to talk about you. And I always talk about you anyway, because how can I not? And I wished you were here, because we're at a rented cottage on Canada Day, and we ate ribs for dinner, and homemade biscuits and beets, and all that made me think of you, and how you love to eat, and would enjoy it. Like, really enjoy it. I thought of Birdie's face, and how it lights up around you. How she's always the kid with the single mom, when we're doing things with my friends with kids. The other kids have siblings, and two parents, and she whispers wishes to me sometimes when she's falling asleep. Things like, Mom, sometimes it would be nice to have a brother or sister to play with, but that's okay. I understand. And I lie there very still beside her. Because when I had her, I wasn't sure I had the feeling, you know, the right feeling I thought I should have about being a parent. But being her mom turned out to be the one truly good thing in my life. The one easy thing and now that I'm approaching 40 the feeling is so strong in me I can't think of anything else sometimes how my body seems to want another baby yours I would do it in a heartbeat now, no question but time is running out and you can only be occasional to us you're not here lighting sparklers with her or singing duets with me as I play guitar around the fire You aren't worried that time is running out. You're trying to make sense of your own life. You're trying to be good and true to you. Your free spirit is what I love about you, even though it's the thing that keeps you from me. You're listening to Alone, a love story, written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC podcast. The story editor is Mark Apollonio. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Mark, here in our hometown of Toronto. Head over to cbc.ca slash alone. If you can believe it, I still have a lot more to say about each episode. More stories, a lot about music, and photos, too. You can also find me on Twitter at AloneCBC. Stick with me. I want to tell you about a whirlwind New York City romance. Hey, there's another CBC podcast I want to tell you about personal best. A sweet and unusual self-improvement podcast hosted by the lovely and hilarious Rob Norman and Andrew Norton. Subscribe to it today. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.